Hey, welcome to the Bio Founders Podcast. My name is Sophia Sanchez. You can find me on Twitter at Sophia S. Bio. And today, I couldn't be happier to introduce you to Mark Ballon, a scientific illustrator whose work has been featured in places like The Nature Magazine, The New York Botanical Garden, and he's worked at NASA too. So before that, I think I should tell you a little bit more about his background. We uh, talk about his experience in the Bachelors of Arts and Science and the Masters in Geochemistry and Astrobiology at the McMaster's University, what drew him to be a scientific illustrator in the first place. We touch on hot topics like AI-generated images, comic sans, his favorite typefaces, how those feel to him and what they mean, what science, art, and the intersection of both mean to him, how he finds the balance between functionality and just beauty, feeling design, you know, having that intuition for it versus following the rules, the tools he uses, and what completely blew my mind, which is neurodesign. Of course, we couldn't end this episode without discussing why you, scientists, and everyone else should care about scientific design and communications. Honestly, this has been the episode that I've enjoyed the most. That's kind of a little part of me design that I haven't been able to dive a lot into, but I love. And so thank you, Mark, for being here. Thank you for listening to this episode. Hi, Mark, again. <laughs> I, I really want to know a little bit more about your background. I, um, yeah, could you tell us what you studied in college and how that, you know, drew you to, to graphic design and biotech? Yeah, sure. Hi again, Sophia, by the way. <laughs> um, sure, I'd be happy to. Maybe just as a bit of a general introduction, so maybe any listeners or whoever's checking this out kind of knows who I am and where I'm where I'm from uh, sure. as, a, as a start before getting into my background. Um, my name is Mark. I'm a scientific illustrator um, or data illustrator or visual science communicator. There tends to be many different hats that, you know, I tend to wear depending on the project. Um, I'm based just outside of Toronto, uh, Canada. Uh, I'm Canadian born, so I'm born and raised here. And um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I am kind of like a passionate science guy who is also very creatively involved and try to merge both of my interests together into the work and into my profession. Um, my background is a bit... Um, Versatile, I think, is a good word because I think I've hopped kind of all over the place with respects to working within science and then transitioning to sort of an arts and creative field. Um, I went to a university um, in Hamilton, Ontario, which is close by to Toronto, called McMaster University. And I studied my undergraduate degree there in arts and science. It was a specialized program, a specialized undergraduate program called arts and science. And it's quite funny, actually, because the program, despite its name, doesn't really do much with those two words or sorry, I shouldn't say it doesn't do much. It's, it's not really representative of art and science. So it's not like it's spitting out a bunch of like scientific artists. It's, it's really meant to be a well-rounded educational program where people can come in and instead of being pigeonholed into just doing biology for like four years straight, you have the flexibility to take like, to take like physics and math and statistics and music and Western thought and Eastern development and, and all of these like, you know, really cool, like, unique topics and I was just so happy to be the one that took it very literally <laughs> I, was, I kind of came in being like uh I'm sort of an artist uh I love science I want to do both and I think the program I was I'm probably the only one who's been spat out literally 
as a scientific artist. <laughs> so I think I really kind of embolden the name or um, or really, you know, carry the, the, the name of that program forward. And finally enough, you know, uh, that program was known as Artsai uh, when I was there. And that's the name of my studio. So it's it's a bit of this link, you know, to my roots in my academic and sort of professional career, um, kind of harking back on where I started and, and kind of where, you know, where I am or what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. So, so that's a fun little tidbit there. I remember also reading in your Twitter thread that you um, probably worked on something else before starting like this um, creative agency, if we could call it that way. Yeah, I mean, well, it's always kind of been around, but I've definitely had, you know, some full-time experience and, and some exposure uh to the science world, you could say, after my undergraduate degree. So I did that first at McMaster. And then afterwards, I did a master's degree in geochemistry and astrobiology, also at uh, McMaster University. Uh, the department there was called the School of Geography and Earth Sciences, but I think it's since changed since I've graduated, and I don't know the name of it off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but it was part of that department, and it was fantastic because it was my first exposure uh, to working with like real science or wet lab research. I was working um, in a geochemistry lab, so I was predominantly focused in, focusing on um, uh, microbialite carbonate. Uh, and, and basically looking at how chemical reactions in analog systems on Earth, how they might pertain to systems beyond Earth. So, so part of my degree at the time was, was also um, astrobiology. So it was, it was like a merger, it was geochemistry oh. and astrobiology. And my project, or my thesis, was to investigate this lake on the west side of Canada called Pavilion Lake. And they have these really unique rock-like structures growing at the bottom of this lake. They kind of look like stalagmites. But the fun thing about them is that they are created through the metabolism of bacteria over really, really long periods of time. So essentially, these bacteria, they cover, you know, the top surface of a rock. They do all this geochemical metabolizing with the water column. And they basically, you know, sort of influence the precipitation of carbonate. And over time, over really gradual long periods of time, you get these sort of towering peak-like structures. And they're fun because within the rock and within the chemistry of the rock, you can record these sort of chemical footprints. And um, I know I'm going on a tangent here, but, but, but I think it's... No, that's fantastic. <laughs> it shows your passion for these unique topics. I mean, it's so for sure. interesting. For sure. But they basically record these chemical signatures mm -hmm. that say, you know, life was once here or life was not here because there's also abiogen abiogenic processes that can influence these uh, structures or influence the formation of these structures. And so the idea is, you know, these are bacteria that have existed, you know, almost... 4 billion years on the planet or however long Earth's been around. And, um, uh, you know, if, if you can determine signatures on Earth, how can you dis determine or suss out similar signatures on other planets, right? So if Mars has similar rock-like structures that have been recorded, you know, mm -hmm. years and years and years after life maybe once existed there, could mm -hmm. you infer these, could you look at these structures as sort of chemical footprints or chemical fossils of life once being there? And it's sort of like this line of evidence to tell us like, oh, cool, life doesn't just exist on Earth. It could exist on, you know, Mars or Titan or Europa or, or wherever the case may be. So, um, so sorry, I know I got into a tangent there, but that was sort of like my first exposure to science. Sure. It was like a, a huge uh, uh, smorgasbord of, of different scientific disciplines, working with like astrophysics, working with biology, working at geochemistry. 
and isotope fractionation and, and all this kind of stuff. And it was just really, uh, it was really inspiring to not only get to do that kind of work. Um, I was working with NASA at the time. So it was part of a NASA project, which was incredible, you know, getting to work with like some truly like true superstars within the space science and biology and geochemistry fields. Um, and, and a huge part of that was, was that collaboration and exposure to, you know, to people who were doing such incredible work. And so it, it was so inspiring to me. This actually gives me so many questions. And the first one is, um, did you ever get to meet uh, Joe Zayner, the like biohacker? No. Okay, because interesting. Uh, I think um, this is one person who's been working on like, uh, you know, biohacking kits and he used to work at NASA and uh, mm -hmm. did some like, um, yeah, anyways, uh, thought, yeah, might be a, a, a connection. But then I, I also wonder, um, so I've heard that a lot of people who are into the life sciences um, start by being interested in astro, like the astro world overall when they're kids. Do, do you think this was the case for you? Like, were you interested in like space and planets when you're younger? That's an awesome question. It's so true. Right? It, it is true that kids like love outer space and astronauts. You know, the classic yeah. example is I'm going to grow up to be an astronaut. It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, for me, actually, that wasn't the case. I was really more into culinary stuff. When I was Ooh. a kid, I wanted to be a chef and that never materialized. I am not a cook <laughs> by any means. Um, no, I think somewhere along the way, I think actually in my undergraduate uh, time where I became more uh, aware of of just outer space and, and um, you know, a couple physics classes in my um, arts and science program. Uh, you know, had had a lot to do with astrophysics, thinking about relativity and, and kind of all of the crazy zany uh, mm -hmm. stuff that that's beyond Earth, if that makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. thinking about gravity and, and and how black holes and light and all that stuff works. And I think that's where the tickle started, or where the itch started to to look into space. And I was pursuing a biology um, during my undergrad. I was pursuing like a biology minor. It was called a combined honors, but it's sort of like a minor situation, like a like you yeah. have a um, like a minor degree so it's, it's similar to that and that's when I thought well how can I blend space science with biology and, and that was sort of the natural yeah. next step looking at astrobio and since then it's it's always been like a constantly developing passion and interest for space sciences in general like it's it's truly such an exhilarating field to think beyond sort of the constraints that we're sort of right. our, our corporeal forms are sort of bound to earth, you know, if that makes yeah. sense. Beyond so it's always sense. fun. Yeah. It's, it's always fun to wonder like what lies beyond and how big and vast and crazy and who knows what's out there kind of stuff. So, yeah. um, so that's always been like the inspiration or the fuel behind, uh, behind that. But You talk about um, the fact that this was your first sort of real science experience or wet lab experience. What do you think science meant to you before that? And yeah. how has your definition of science changed? That's a beautiful question. I think prior to doing my master's, science was just a lot of textbooks and a lot of um, a lot of studying for tests and exams, right? It was very formulaic. It was very bland. There wasn't really any control, you know, and there wasn't any design. Um, everything is kind of taken out of a textbook through my undergrad. It's like, you know, you sit through a, a course for like, you know, four or five months 
or less. I, I forget how long <laughs> it is to do a course now um, or how that's maybe changed. Um, but, you know, that, that's kind of like your exposure to science. And then once you kind of cross over, cross over into, you know, the, the graduate programs, that's when you start actually kind of reading paper, at least for me and in, in, in my personal experience, was that's when you started reading papers, really scrutinizing like experiment design and how researchers approach certain questions and really familiarizing yourself with the with the layout uh, or, or sorry, the lay of the land in terms of like what research is being out there, what, what are superstar papers, you know, what papers defined, let's say a subgenre of science. I don't even know if that's the right word, but for instance, when I started uh, my master's, I just learned what metagenomics was. And, and, and so it was, uh, you know, having to learn about all these papers that sort of define that era and define that, uh, that subgenre. And so it was just a very different approach to science. And then of course, once you get in the lab, like for me, it was, it was a wet lab research project where I was working in a lab daily for hours on end and, you know, working with instrumentation, being thoughtful about, you know, what your hypothesis was and how you were going to work through the scientific method and how are you going to curate results? And then also produce something at the end that wasn't an exam, right? You were actually going to produce a paper and collaborating with people, not only in a lab, but with your PI, uh, your research supervisor, et cetera. It was just a totally different way to learn. And, um, and, and of course, working in the field, like that's another huge component, right? Like I, I was very fortunate to go to British Columbia which is on the west side of Canada, and, you know, go to this really isolated lake, sort of in the middle of nowhere. There's just a tiny town nearby um, and maybe a few lake houses by the lake. And, and you know, work with, like, really esteemed professionals from NASA. And it was just, it, it's just such a different way to learn and a different way to sort of flex your brain and to, and to have a different sense of control or to have some form of control um, in terms of what you will produce and, and what you're chasing and, and what questions you want answered. And so for me, that's why it felt more like real science. I felt more, it was more personalized in that sense. And it was more active on my part. Gotcha. And now like after that and after NASA, um, you may have mentioned this already and I missed it, but uh, what what was actually that uh, situation or thought that sparked this idea of getting into like designing beautiful uh, I like science things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's actually the, the, uh, the place or, or, you know, the, the experience that sort of bred this opportunity. Uh, part of my research was, uh, you know, isotope fractionation, which is basically how isotopes of certain elements sort of divide naturally or unnaturally in the environment based on certain processes or metabolisms or other influences. And everything, you know, regarding that topic is done at, at, a, at an atomic level. It's basically invisible to the eyes. And, and from that standpoint, when I approached it for the first time, I, I didn't have a chemical background. I had a biology background. So I understood how cells work and biochemistry and stuff like that. But then trying to incorporate this geochemical aspect to it, it was all foreign to me. And so while I was reading these studies on metagenomics and trying to understand, uh, you know, the field of geochemistry, it was a constant barrier to me to wrap my head around what exactly I was reading in these papers. You know, you would read these papers and they were describing these processes or how things divided or what fractionation was. And I could not understand it. I, I just was so frustrated. I wanted someone to visualize this, these processes. I, I'm a visual learner. I can so relate. Me, it's the, yeah. Exactly. It's the bias, right? For me, it's the personal bias, but it's also just 
wanting the additional line of, of support or the additional line of evidence or whatever you want to call it that was going to make um, understanding what I was supposed to be learning easier. And for me, it, it was going through that frustration or, you know, having to like really, really pick at other sources or really do digging to find um, uh, to find resources that would kind of help me. And once I could see things, once I could visualize things or I would speak to people in the lab and they would do, you know, um, napkin drawings or sketches or whatever, and things would click for me. And that's where I recognized the value. Mm-hmm. And so, so that for me was sort of the catalyst to being like, okay, you know, to be honest, at the time, I wasn't really enjoying working in the lab. I found it a little bit dry, for me, even though it was a lot more active, I just think the long hours and, and having to think and being frustrated with, you know, research uh, or sorry, experimental design issues was just not something I wanted um, to work with. Someone told me something amazing actually during during my master's degree, which I still think about was they were telling me when I was thinking about applying to a PhD, but voicing some, some um, uh, uh, reservations about pursuing it, they said to me, you know, Mark, what kind of, what kind of problems do you want to solve in your future? Hmm. And that shifted everything for me because I said, I don't really want to do design problems. I really want to, uh, sorry, research problems. I really want to solve design and visual problems. Hmm. And I think that was sort of the background, you know, for, for why I was already looking outside of academia a little bit. And then the push to move into that direction was, uh, I mean, I, I guess, you know, in the background of in the background of all of this is I was always creatively involved ever since I was a kid. So all through my, you know, uh, uh, being a kid and uh, my teens and in my undergrad, I was always painting on the side, drawing on the side. I was involved with like, you know, those volunteer groups at schools when they're making cute little magazines about um you know, local, I don't know, like uh, high school events or at the university level, it's, you know, what kind of uh, uh, events or or um, uh, research or science opportunities are available on campus. Anything that was like, you know, sort of creatively focused that I could get involved with. I was always doing this. So for me, it was like, okay, my life up until that point had always been a compromise. I was putting all of my time and focus into science and just doing science work. But there was this background of wanting to be creatively involved and creatively engaged. And it was always like the seesaw. Mm-hmm. Like, do I do this? Do I not do this? Uh, okay, today is science, but the weekend is art. And I just kind of grew sick of the compromise. I just wanted to put the two together. And sure. and now to come back to, to your question, I think was, you know, experiencing this in my studies was where I sort of Um, wanted to take the leap into the next phase of my career. And it just so happened that I had discovered the biomedical communications program or the master's, a master of science in biomedical communications program at the university of Toronto, uh, where, you know, primarily their focus is on uh, biomedical and biological communication from a visual standpoint, which is usually medical illustration. Uh, But there are components to it that basically transfer to science communication as well, working with any sort of technical information and being, you know, largely preoccupied with how to visualize it. How do you draw it? How do you show it? How do you visually demonstrate a process, a timeline, uh, uh, morphology, and any kind of thing like that. And uh, yeah, that was sort of the next step. And after I finished that master's in geochemistry, that's uh, that was the next step in my career. 
That's awesome. I really like how you, well, from my perspective, at least you've been involved and interested in very sometimes niche, as you say, topics or just like unique topics. But at the same time, you've been able to, you know, get them to that next level in which, you know, uh, it, they're just like known by a lot of people. I think you, you also like um, one of your illustrations was used in a, like a nature magazine, I think. Um, I, I mean, a couple of my, I think. The, well, I guess um, that more than one, of course. <laughs> I think there's just a couple. There's there's a couple of research diagrams. I think there's one on my website, which is a nature uh, cover, but that was a uh, unselected cover. So mm -hmm. there's sort of this um, um, difficult process from the creative side where, you know, different um, it's like almost crowdsourced or open sourced or I don't know what the word is, but there's sort of proposals that are made for a front cover and such. And, uh, you know, you do the work for it, hoping it's going to get it. And unfortunately, it doesn't. Uh, it was the same situation with the science uh, journal <laughs> cover as well. So, I mean, it, it's I think it's the nature of the beast in this industry that I work with. But um, so they didn't make front covers, but they were designed, you know, with the preparation, with the mentality of, 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 of going there. But there has been some work which isn't on on actually my website or any of my um any of my uh, portfolios online that have been published in nature alongside, uh, you know, research articles. We're working and collaborating with researchers to create visuals for their, um, you know, for their projects. So. That's awesome. I, I I also remember this like program, BioRender. I don't know if, uh, have you ever made use of it or uh, is it more like you design everything from scratch? Yeah. So funny story about BioRender is actually no um, you know, the CEO or the owner or the developer designer of, of BioRender, Shizuke wow. Aoki, she's, she's a superstar. Um, I haven't seen her or spoken to her in years, but there was a, we had a small brief encounter where it did some work for her and, you know, was, was, was looking into joining the BioRender team and that kind of stuff, but, um, uh, it just didn't materialize, but, um, yeah, I mean, so BioRender is, I guess it's different in the sense that it's like an icon library or, uh, an yeah. icon. I don't know if icon's the right word, but you know, sort of like a clip art or a library of clip art pieces. And I think what Shizuka is doing there is, is phenomenal because the you know developing a very standardized and very meticulous and sort of detailed platform for scientists to kind of put together their own images is a huge, huge um, you know bonus. I think for researchers who are struggling with how to put figures together or how to visually communicate things like that together. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I follow them and, and uh, kind of see their work and what they're doing online. And uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see that, you know, that there's uh, some platform and some availability out there for researchers. But of course, I mean, on the flip side of it, it I don't want to speak ill of them, but there is, it, there's, you know, two sides to, uh, I don't say every story. I don't know what expression I'm going for here, but it's one thing to have the images, but there's the, there's the theory and the application, which is, you know, not so easily handheld. You can have beautiful graphics, but you need functional graphics in the world of science and, and technical research. And, you know, while you have the icon library, which is great because it is super important to have a, a strong piece, you know, how you put those pieces together is going to really uh, drive your message, your communication home. And um, I don't know if BioRender actually has any services or things that are provided around that, but I would definitely say that's where a science illustrator or a specialist in visual communication is going to help you. 
Hmm. I find that concept very interesting, actually. Like, how do you balance? Because I suppose that you must be sometimes very, you know, design oriented in the sense that you might like to, you know, just see beautiful things, right? And in the world of science, it's kind of the complete opposite. As you say, it must be functional as well. So how do you uh, find that balance? Yeah, that's a great question and a great observation because my philosophy, like my design philosophy, I would say in general is I just want to make science look pretty <laughs> because <laughs> so much of science, I think is just so drab and dense. It can be yeah. so boring, you know, and it's kind of like that archetype of being the dude at parties. That's like, you know, actually this is the stuff and like nobody likes that vibe. Right. So, so I always try to think, how can you flip the script about how science is spoken about and how it's visualized? And so a huge portion of that, you're right. Right. It does come from design and thinking artistically and creatively, but, you know, where most of the art world doesn't have guardrails, you know, you can create fantasy creatures and really cool anime characters and there's kind of no rules or, or guardrails. The science world does have that. <laughs> and so you're actually quite limited in how much artistic license you can have. Mm. And so you're absolutely right uh, in uh, and, you know, in saying that, like, there is this balance between what is functional and what is decorative and pretty and attractive. And oftentimes it's it's a lot of work. It's it's not as, as simple as sitting down and just doing it. You have to right. sort of tinker with pieces and sort of it's like a puzzle almost. You have to kind of sit down and move things around and figure out how are you going to connect to different it's like building a I would say it's like building a bridge from two different sides and trying to meet in the middle. That's sort of like the analogy I like to give because you're you're having something pretty and something functional and you want them to meet in the middle and then have a nice bridge that works, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so and that can be really difficult to do. And so it takes up a lot of time. A lot of experience is needed. And uh, sometimes it's just not possible. Sometimes you will lean one way more than another. Just curious, have you ever been told that your images are like maybe too pretty, but not functional? You know what? I have been told... Uh, maybe not directly that, but I have been told once um, uh, on a certain project by by a doctor at a conference in front of 700 people. It was so mortifying. This is years and years and years ago. I had developed, a, um, I've been working on a kidney transplant education program, which is all animated um, and sorry, hand-drawn or hand-illustrated and animated. And it is, um, it has this sort of like, uh, 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 like cute appearance. Uh, I don't want to say juvenile because that's what I was ultimately insulted for. <laughs> for creating something that was juvenile when it was about something that was very um, uh, uh, personal or like, you know, sort of difficult because it's about, you know, the kidney loss and, and needing a transplant in the road and the journey is quite difficult. So it's quite sensitive. That's what I'm looking for. Um, and so I wanted to create something that was fun. It would appeal to all ages and, you know, would appeal to like an appropriate le uh, reading level. And it was called out and being told like, it's too juvenile. I would rather show a textbook. And, <laughs> you know, in, in situations like that, it can be quite disheartening and discouraging, yeah. you know, especially when your intentions are good and you're coming from a place of passion. Um, but I think in this field, a lot of the approach and the thoughtfulness has to come with some sense of justification. I don't think you, but like I mentioned, you don't just have the creativity or the freedom necessarily to just do any kind of visual you want. And so uh, I think part of having a, a part of being able to respond to that is, is to make sure you have good justification for it is what you're doing. And for me in that case, it was, you know, listen, we designed a program that was going to appeal to a broad range of people. The standard reading level is a grade five uh, 
reading level. I don't know what that trends in, in Canada. That's about, oh, I don't know how old that is. Maybe 10 years old. Maybe. Something yeah. like that. Something like that. I'm not sure. But if that's the general population's reading level, then you kind of want to appeal to, you know, sort of that that age range. Sure. And, uh, you know, there's literature that supports this and that is ultimately our justification for it. But um, yeah, as you say, I, I you must also think somehow of your target audience, right, in some way. Yeah, and that will make the difference. I, I wonder, I, I maybe these days the million dollar question is, what are your thoughts on, you know, AI generated images? Is that art? Is that not art? <laughs> would you ever use it for one of your illustrations? How would you leverage it? Do you think it's going to, you know, this is a hot topic question. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but we're happy to, you know, be open to all opinions. So yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so my thoughts and feelings about AI, you know, I I I feel like I'm trapped between a rock and a hard place with it, only because on one hand I can see the absolute use for it in the sense that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of times in my own creative process where I have a vision of something but I don't have the reference. You know, I, I, it's just it's it's sitting in my head. Maybe I've seen it somewhere, and sometimes just a quick prompt on a certain feeling or personality or behavior putting it into something like I've played with AI a little bit just to see what it can do. And some of the things you get spit back out are wonderful in terms of like, this is a great color palette, or this is wonderful composition. You know, some of that preliminary thinking can maybe already be done for you. And then maybe you can use it as a tool to kind of like inform your own creative choices moving forward with a piece. Mm -hmm. I haven't incorporated this yet in my practice, but it's something I could definitely see being used or applied right to creating visuals. So on one hand, I don't want to say I'm for it, but I can definitely see a use for it. And um, I think within reason, if it's not being abused, it could be a, a great asset and a great tool for many artists, especially people who, who are artists who maybe don't specialize in like static creations. Maybe they're photographers and they don't know how to use color and maybe that can inform how to use color. Or maybe, you know, people are um, um, animators and they want, you know, a color palette to inform or, or compositional layout or, or anything like that, right? Like, I think that could be a great tool. On the flip side, though, like this huge issue with, you know, intellectual property being stolen, I don't think it's fair. Um, mm. It's a huge, huge problem. And it's, it's really disheartening to see on social media, because I think that's the arena where these conversations are currently taking place. Yeah. You know, you see sort of, I don't want to say defense for AI, but but sort of the misunderstanding of how the industry or the creative industries work in terms of intellectual property and copyrights and licensing. And uh, it's just the nature of the industry. And um, that, that's a bit hard to resolve when, you know, you sort of see some individuals that are, um, you know, not really working or not really thinking the best interests of artists sure. or how this could affect their livelihood. Um, so I, I it, it, it's tough. I, I do think ultimately, though, that, you know, with AI, no matter what comes out from it, there will always be a human response that AI cannot predict or will not be able to, you know, uh, respond to. Um, and I think in many ways, however humans choose to respond to AI after some time will will generate its own value. So what I mean by that is, you know, AI currently has a very sort of samey look and feel. Um, if that becomes the norm, then people who kind of go against that grain as a human response will will start to will start to attract value. It'll start to look different. It will start to be appealing. And yeah. so I think as long as humans are always kind of being active and responding 
know, to AI or to whatever, whatever other technical advancements uh, that we make, then I think we'll, we'll be okay. Um, mm -hmm. But who knows? The world seems like it's really topsy-turvy lately. So, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I know I'm giving a wishy-washy answer, but I'm trying to be optimistic. It's good to know your thoughts. Here. You know, as someone in um, actually in the let's say the art side of this. Can I interrupt you and ask what you think of it as, you know, sure. maybe a scientist who, you know, might find a lot of resource and use out of, out of projects like BioRender or maybe even AI, right? Like what it can do for you, especially if you're working on a very niche or technical or like super individualized and personalized science project. You know, yeah. what, are, what are your thoughts and feelings as? Well, you know, I've played around with it and I'm still in that phase in which I'm like super mind blown by like the almost delimited possibilities of everything it creates. You know, I was in this uh, Discord server. And by the way, our uh, meeting is about to end. Maybe we can um, just rejoin when it ends. Um, yeah, I was in this Discord server and I, I wasn't just able to wrap my mind around how many images were just being generated every like nonstop, you know. Um, so I think that, as you say, it could be used as a very good creative asset, especially because, you know, me being someone who's not very, um, you know, I, I guess, talented when drawing things from scratch and so on. I think I can use that. Uh, sometimes I found out, though, that, uh, you know, simple things as... Um, drawing a, a person running you know the legs are just like not in the right place and just like logical things like these I think that humans can still <laughs> do that way better and of course um, maybe having I don't know I think that we have some sort of mm, affection towards things that are created by humans you know we have more empathy towards that so I wonder what it will look like you know in a future when we have more of these things widespread and trying to identify uh, which was created by an AI or by a human and how that makes us feel. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but I mean, uh, outside of that, I also wanted to ask you about, um, you, you mentioned composition. So I used to do photography, you know, some years before I learned a little about, um, bit about that. And I, you know, just generally remember that uh, hearing that there are certain universal laws of design and, you know, color theory and so on. How much of that uh, do you use on your day-to-day -day or have you found that to be more of an intuitive thing? Oh, great question. Um, so quick answer, I use it every single day. It's just part of the bread and butter or meat and potatoes, <laughs> whatever that expression is uh, in, in the line of work that I do, absolutely. Um, for me, though, if you ask me how to describe it, that's where it gets tricky. It is intuitive for me. There is, for me, it's a very emotional response. It's a, it's a visceral response. And um, uh, that can be not good in the sense that it's quite hard to articulate or justify my decisions or my creative decisions and, and decision-making to, um, to my peers or to colleagues or to other people in the industry. Um, yeah. So for me, it's, it's a lot of my composition just has to sort of feel right. And, um, sometimes I like when it doesn't feel right. Like sometimes I like to flip things on their head, you know, like uh, just to, just to sort of breathe in some innovation, uh, even if it's not innovative, but it's something that I like to think is hopefully innovative or or different. And and um, uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's largely on a feeling, and and um, I'm sure that that feeling is is 
is not misguided, that it's built on, you know, years of, of doing color theory and, and learning this kind of stuff, especially in, at the University of Toronto uh, with the Masters of Biomedical Communications program. You know, we, we cover a lot of, you know, the artistic uh, background for all of these things. But to be honest, I don't keep an eye on it. And it's not something that I, I like even the vocabulary around like uh, Adobe's uh, programs and software. It's not something I'm super familiar with, and it's something I keep learning as I spend more and more time with these things. Um, and, and for me, largely, it's 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 some sort of um, uh, innate or divine. I don't know what you want to call it. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should use divine in the science capacity, but uh, but sometimes it, I, I like to attribute it to, to something beyond me, which is, which is maybe a bit zany, but uh, yeah. I, I think that's that's mostly how I work. Do you normally use Adobe then for everything you do? Pretty much, yeah. Adobe is something I picked up in high school. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, I was, like I mentioned, drawing on the side and I was doing a lot of fan art. So, you know, I watched Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon and uh, what else was <laughs> going on at the time. I don't know if it's common in other parts of the world, but at least in Canada, you know, anime was really huge when I was a teen. And uh, sites like Deviant, DeviantArt, uh, you know, we're, we're fostering communities for artists and there was a lot of digital art and that's how I got introduced and would learn about Adobe. And I picked it up at like 16, 17 and just kept working with it throughout the years. And so I've grown very, very familiar with it. I do use other software though, um, depending on like what the project is. So for example, I commonly work with Cinema, uh, Maxon Cinema 4D, which is a 3D software. Um, when I want to do like some 3D sculpting or create some assets that maybe have special textures or lighting, maybe I want special lighting and I, I'm not really sure how shadows are going to play with what it is I'm illustrating. I'll definitely use that as a resource. Um, and then sometimes there's other pro uh, products that I'll use on a one-time basis. The name is totally escaping me right now, but there's this fabulous space video game uh, where you can simulate the, I think it's called Space Engine. That might be it. Mm. Um, where you can basically kind of design your own planets and input all these physics. And uh, you can do planetary physics, like, you know, what is the temperature? What is the atmosphere? What is, how many uh, rivers or peaks and mountains and stuff? Like virtually anything you can do. And then create your own solar system and explore it. And one of the cool features from that is that you could export what you made on the planet into like a, a map. Um, an equal rectangular map, and I would use those maps, I would edit and decorate those maps, and then re-export them into, like, uh, Adobe's After Effects and sphere mm -hmm. spherify them to make planets. And then that's basically how I would generate my own sort of planet textures, um, which is just a very unique way to uh, to work with software. Like, it, it's, it's a different creative process than what I'm used to. And sometimes I find programs that let me, you know, kind of have fun, be creative, and explore different venues of of generating visuals um, than, than just your standard, uh, you know, design software. Interesting. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I, I will check those out. I have sort of a nerdy question now. Um, well, nerdy in, in the artistic sense. Do you have any, like, favorite typographies or typefaces? Oh, do I have any favorite typefaces? Um on looks or on usage or, or just in general or just in general you know I've been uh as I say like starting to get into design a little bit more so I I, I just I have just realized that I really love um Montserrat the that oh, letter nice. yeah it's uh 
So I sometimes like to ask people about that. And given that no, you're I love that question. No, I love that question. I just feel like I could answer it differently depending on what the criteria is. I think in general, the one font I tend to keep coming back to, and um, it's becoming a bit of a problem for me because once I start realizing I'm doing something regularly, I try to break it. So this is fonts now I'm sort of re-exploring, but I've been quite fond of the font of the font, <laughs> uh, Avenir, uh, okay. A-V-E-N-I-R. It's a very basic uh, sans-serif font, but it's just very uh, crisp and clean mm-hmm. and uh, really nice to work with. Uh, sure. It's sort of become maybe a little bit of my brand, which is I don't like doing, I don't like creating a sort of visual consistency, even though I think I'm falling into the trap of doing that. So I'm trying <laughs> to feel, feel ways that I can interrupt it. But I would say Avenir is really nice. Quicksand is a Google font, um, which is mm-hmm. also quite nice. It's quite simple. Um, it has that approachability that I think Comic Sans is going for, but doesn't have sort of that dorky chalkboard kind of look and feel yeah. that everyone hates it. <laughs> I actually wanted to get your thoughts on Comic Sans. <laughs> I would love to talk about Comic Sans because I have many thoughts and feelings about it. (laughs) (laughs) So funnily enough, um, Comic Sans, I think culturally has a really bad rap because I think it kind of has this personality of being super childish and kind of dorky. And I feel so bad for it because from what I understand, Comic Sans... I haven't looked into this for some time, so it could either be total misinformation. So this is the big disclaimer. This could be Mm -hmm. misinformation. I don't know. Or it could be outdated information. I don't know. But from what I recall is that Comic Sans actually has a utility that goes beyond just aesthetics. So I think there's researchers who've done work out there that show that um, for people who suffer from dyslexia, Comic Sans has been quite beneficial. That it sort of reduces their ability to struggle or sort of reduces their struggle with with reading and and sort of aids them and helps them. Um, So there's that. The other thing is that it helps with approachability. So if you're doing a really, really dense topic or something that could be intimidating from like an intellectual or academic standpoint, putting it in comic sans sort of like makes it, I guess it juvenilizes it, it more childish and therefore more friendly, more approachable, which is great. And, um, what was the third thing I was going to say? Oh, it helps with long-term retention, allegedly. Wow. So people are able to like recall information a lot better because of their exposure to maybe like, you know, critical concepts in this font format. So, yeah. you know, there might be a reason why, I don't know if you recall the Large Hadron Collider back when it was announced and that it discovered the God particle, uh, the Higgs mm-hmm. boson years and years ago, their press release was all done in Comic Sans. Wow. So, <laughs> so all the PowerPoints <laughs> that they showed in this esteemed science group were all in Comic Sans that I remember I think the internet at the time was like, you know, up in arms yeah. about it. But there is a functional utility to Comic Sans that I think transcends its ugliness. And <laughs> for that, I'd sort of like the ugly duckling in a group of like, you know, very colorful and creative cast members in the font families that you know sure it's ugly but we like her anyway because (laughs) yeah well that's the balance you know between beauty and functionality that's comic sense right there oh my well that's actually such an interesting topic how many different typefaces and even colors and all like this let's say, neural part of design. That's super interesting. Oh, there's a huge component. Yeah, there's a huge component to how like visuals and like visual stimuli, you know, affect our sort of neurological processing and how we uptake information and how we work with new information. And um, I mean, it's such an exciting and thrilling part of the research world because so much of this is going to inform not only you know, my industry and what I do, but like virtually everything, advertising and movies and film and and, uh, 
video games and whatever it is, right? It's how it's how our brains process information or stimuli of any kind. So um, yeah, it's super, super cool stuff. And I think fonts definitely fall into that. If not from a functional standpoint, definitely from a personality and sort of branding standpoint, right? Like mm. it's part of the approach that I have in the projects I do. I always try to think of all my projects as a personality brand, and especially the topic I'm discussing, you know, trying to think of ways that like, you know, how can I blend in sort of the sentiments around this topic into the font choices and into even the colors and the arrangements and the images I'm going to use. Like, you know, there's there's always that sort of thought about what does it mean for a human to be reading this and how do humans and how, how do cultures and how do societies or communities or audiences, how do they interpret things that are already out there, right? So it's like a human-based approach, I guess, to design and to design thinking. That's awesome. I I'd, I would really love to see maybe a nature or a, you know, very prestigious journal paper and then like all laid out in Comic Sans maybe for people to remember it. And the, you know, paper is all about the, the effect of Comic Sans. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I will actually dive a little bit more into that topic. Um, yeah, please do. Because like I said, I, it's been some time since I've looked into that. And I don't know if, if there's been more research on it or if things have changed or if I'm speaking, like it could be totally possible and speaking from a place of, of being misinformed. <laughs> but, <laughs> but from what I understand, you know, that there is this other layer to Comic Sans. So definitely look into it if you're if you're yeah. interested more about it. Yeah, just something more I want to ask you. Is there anything else you know, just general insights, thoughts, anything um, about merging these two worlds, science and um, art? Uh, sorry, what was your question? Like any thoughts? Just Yeah, just like anything, last thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah, I would use the opportunity to answer that question with just to kind of like, you know, advocate for the use of visuals in the scientific world, um, predominantly because we are visual creatures. Uh, first and foremost, our biology is wired in a way that we have a both conscious and subconscious preference for the uptake of visual information. The way that our bodies sort of process information, it visually it outpaces every other sense. So like, you know, we perceive the world through our senses, how we hear, what we see, what we touch, what we taste and what we smell. That's our, you know, our, our informed response to the world. And visuals by far, both subconsciously and consciously, just knock it out of the park. And so for me, when I'm thinking about science and how science can be so dense and technical and difficult and, and sometimes um, unapproachable, especially to the general public, uh, why not? In the interest of sort of communicating and informing new uh, new audiences and, and people about you know really esoteric and maybe difficult things, why not aid in that journey by appealing to that visual preference, right? If you know that people have this biological wiring, you know that that says that they want to see pictures or they want to see things in order to believe it, we should be sort of adapting to that need and and working to that. And it could be anything, you know, you don't have to be a Picasso or a or a Da Vinci in order to create a, a good visual. There's a lot of things uh, just in terms of composition or or putting things visually so you can see it on paper that can do a lot of the heavy lifting for you in communication. And so um, if anything, if there's anything I want to close off with or, or to say, it's just to think more about how you can incorporate visuals of any kind, pictures, video, film, any any sort um, into the world of, of, of science and technical 
research um, because I'm sure I guarantee getting that message across can be a lot easier and a lot more satisfying um, to audiences. Awesome. Well, I'm very, very happy to have chatted with you, Mark. It was really nice to get to know more about what you do, why you do it, and what your thoughts are on different topics. So yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sophie. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, you may also like listening to the synthetic biology evangelist Jake Wintermead from Ginkgo Bioworks, one of the largest synthetic biology companies in the world. I'll leave the link to that in the description below, as well as to my substack, sophiaasbio.substack.com, where I've published essays in collaboration with biotech company builders, as well as biotech advisory firms on biotech innovations, startups, and the bioeconomy. And just in case you happen to wonder what my face looked like when Mark talked about Comic Sans, you may want to check out the video of this episode in the description too. Have a fantastic day and see you later.